This episode of The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. David, welcome to The Backdrop. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. We're very excited for our upcoming uh, Wisco weekend, is what we're calling it. And one of the staples of the trip is going to be our stop at the Club of Lac La Belle, um, a place that you now, I, I believe, are intimately familiar with its history, uh, which is why we're yeah. excited to t- chat with you today. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's a marvelous spot. You're going to enjoy your golf, but uh, I think you'll also enjoy learning a little bit about what happened uh, 120 or 125 years ago in golf. Can't wait. I mean, I, I definitely in, in uh, recent years have started to dive a lot more into the history of places that we visit, and it really does add to that experience. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it, it makes you realize that important things happened there a long time ago. And, um, uh, you know, the people that did it are the real story because these were working class kids that, that were coming into a sport that they didn't know was going to take hold. It was a fad when they came to America and they, they bought round trip tickets. They didn't come here and burn the ships. So before we get to Lac LaBelle, I wanted to, um, take a step back and, and ask you where you got into golf history. Uh, you're obviously very keen um, to it. I, I found your name on a couple different clubs that you've done the research and pro, uh, research projects for. But where, where did this fascination with the history of the game start with you? Yeah, um, first of all, I'm not a golfer. Uh, I took it up late after I retired. Uh, but I spent a lot of time on golf courses. So uh, I was a, a distance runner, a cross-country runner uh, in the state of Wisconsin. And um, actually ran a race very close to uh, Economolock and Lock the Bell. But um, so I, I uh, put in the book that I wrote for our club that um, I went to high school with uh, Andy North. Now, he was four years ahead of me, uh, but we both held the course record at Monona Grove High School at the golf course. Now, he did it in golf. I did it in cross country. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, so. I, I knew of golf. I enjoyed the sport, but you know, during my working years, I, I stuck to that. Uh, when I retired, I became involved at uh, a country club. I, I joined Diablo Country Club, and uh, uh, ended up getting on the board. And while I was sitting at, uh, up on stage, uh, being introduced, uh, ten minutes later, a Q and A, and someone had uh, mentioned that they were disappointed that we had the wrong name on our scorecard for our, co- our golf course designer. Our golf course designer said Jack Neville. And there was evidence of William Watson, but no evidence of Jack Neville. So he offered to pay for the scorecards to be uh, reprinted because uh, history became divisive, not accretive to our club. It was becoming a, a problem. So I figured I could, I could solve that problem. I could figure that answer out. That couldn't be that hard. Uh, as I did that, I, I dove into something that has consumed my life now for the last nine years. Yeah, uh, it, it turns... You got in so deep that you just, there's no looking back. Yeah, my club uh, was going to be 100 years old. And so then I offered to write a history book for my club. And uh, in that process, what I discovered is that it wasn't a 100-year-old club. Uh, This area, of course, is 140 years old, one of the original ranches in California. And it was converted to a country club in 1914 by a dreamer. But it was the railroad uh, barons and the gold mining capitalists that had uh, their children married and created wealth beyond measure. And they built a grand ranch here. And we owned a mountain. And the club then purchased that in 1914 and created a country club. So in that time, though, uh, a young man named Jack Neville had learned his golf from a young man named George Smith. Well, George Smith's dad was going to be our golf pro. And so Jack Neville came out to design our golf course. Now, Jack Neville was a five-time California amateur champion, uh, an amateur, which was important in the day. He wanted that pedigree. But also, um, he learned his golf from the greenkeeper's son. But Francis, we met, had uh, just been suspended for owning part of a golf pro shop in, uh, in the East Coast by the USGA. And uh, Jack Neville had just designed a golf course at Diablo for money. And so he was afraid of being... Uh, uh, stripped of his amateur status. So he literally told everyone, I'll design the course, but you can't tell a soul. 
So Jack Neville became urban legend. There was no proof that he designed the course. Uh, it took me two and a half years to find the proof that he designed it. So we end up now with the Jack Neville and William Watson designed golf course, nine holes and nine holes. Um, and Jack, so it was a conspiracy to keep it a secret. But Jack Neville's next assignment was Pebble Beach. Wow. Yeah. So that's and how that, I got and, started. And that one they didn't keep a secret. <laughs> no, no, they uh, they shouted that from the rooftops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you know, for I, I, I've thought about uh, a lot now that many of our golf courses in America are coming up on centennials um, mm -hmm. and, and are these venerable places because they're a hundred years old. You know, you add an extra digit to the number. I think people start to take notice. Mm -hmm. Can you, for, yeah. for us that maybe uh, haven't spent as much time doing the research in the books as you have, can you explain what golf was like in America a hundred years ago? Yeah, you have to go 120. Uh, so you have to go 120 years ago because that, that's when golf came across as a sport that uh, was exploding, but only exploding amongst those with enough resource to be able to afford it, to have the time and the resource. So, um, so 120 years ago, we were still using golf balls that were made out of gutta percha, which was basically a rubber, right? A, a, a sap from a tree. And uh, it was hand molded. And if it broke, you could literally reheat it and mold it again. So you didn't want to lose it because it, it, was, it was reusable. Um, and then the golf clubs were made, uh, for the most part, hand-forged. And they were made to hit this piece of rubber, hardened rubber. Uh, and it would fly 200 yards, 225 yards, maybe a little bit more if you were unbelievable. It would roll forever. But... Um, but so that, that's the sport that came to America in 1895, 1900. And that was the time frame when it was really exploding. Remember, America had had a, a crash, the panic of 1893. So uh, by 1897, 1898, things were coming back again in the economy. And that's when the golf course expansion just simply exploded. You know, Chicago went from zero courses in 1893 to 30 courses five years later. Now, when you have 30 courses, you don't have enough people who know how to play the sport to care for it, manage the, uh, you know, the process, uh, build clubs, which are handmade, or recreate golf balls. And uh, so you had to bring people in for that. And that's where they went across to get people from Scotland, who uh, typically working class people, lots of times they were blacksmiths or shoemakers or other things, or club makers. And they would uh, uh, come across for the summer and go back home in the winter. And that's what happened in 1898. Alex Smith uh, from Carnoustie and two young men, uh, Fred Hurd and uh, uh, William Yeoman, came across from St. Andrews to go to a club in Chicago called the Washington Park Club. And uh, this club was a racetrack with a golf course in the middle. And that's how these things happened. Golf courses got built wherever they had space. And uh, they just couldn't build enough of them. There were, there were always 300 people to fill them when they built a quality course. So these were hardworking kids coming in, teaching captains of industry, because you had to be successful, and their children. So this was truly a family sport. Uh, the, the, the wives played, the, the husbands played, the children played. Uh, and it, they would tie it in as a country club, not a city club, but a, now it's a new thing called a country club. They would tie it in with other outdoor activities. And so it was really a place to go, not just, it wasn't really a golf club. There were several of those, but they were almost always country clubs. I, I've heard reference here in Chicago, uh, where majority of our members of the Golf Society live, um, to, to Washington Park Club. But I've never actually looked up where that was located. Do you know? Right where the Obama Library is being built. Okay, so it was on the, the yeah. lakefront almost. Uh, which is off the lake, uh, probably 10, 15 blocks off the lake in the park. Um, and it is, it's still park. But uh, it was an area that after the, uh, the Columbia exhibition, uh, this area was kind of adjacent to quality. But the, race, the racetrack got built in 1883. And it just so happens that the racetrack and the club was developed by a young man named John Dupee. And John Dupee was also the one who brought the golf pros in for Washington Park and Oconomowoc. 
so we, we should get to Oconomowoc and, and the connections there. Before we, we let you uh, educate us on, on that whole story, um, give, give us a sense of these, these projects. You've done it, uh, the history for your own club. Um, you have, have done this research and, uh, and are kind to share it for all of us at Lac LaBelle. What, what is it? What is the undertaking like? What is the time commitment? You know, you've been doing it for nine years. When you when you go diving into a hundred and twenty year history uh, of a club like this, how, tell give us a sense of of what that entails. Yeah, these are these are like uh, like friends who become guests in your house, who become family members, and then kind of manage and own the place. So my my wife and I don't have children, but we've got plenty of house guests. Uh, whether it's whether it's the golf clubs around the house or the other memorabilia or other things that we have, so um, so it's really important to understand why I got hooked. I got hooked not because of Jack Neville, I got hooked because of George Smith, the middle son of the, the most success of the father, the proudest father in golf, as I call it. So John Smith was born poor, Dundee, Scotland, took up the the game of golf later in his life when he moved to Carnoustie and took his boys to Carnoustie. Uh, he had five boys that all played professional golf and uh, four of the five played in U.S. Opens. Three of the five finished at the top of the leaderboard in U.S. Opens. Uh, they uh, uh, won three and but two of the three times a brother was in second place. And that father, that very proud father, spent the last 25 years of his life 100 yards behind me in this neighborhood. And so my home is in the center of the community where the electric rail used to stop. The Oakwood uh, stop for the Okananyak and Eastern Railroad. Uh, so they would stop here on an electric rail. John would walk home. Uh, his son would work at a, at a foundry after the war. This literally was home for the most successful golfing family that ever came to America from Scotland. And all that history had gotten lost. So when I discovered that through our early process that Carnoustie was the answer to every question I had, I immediately went to Carnoustie and uh, met up with Robert Simpson's grandson, uh, Trevor Williamson. And uh, Trevor is a club maker, uh, was the proprietor, third generation proprietor of his family shop, the oldest existing golf shop in the world. And uh, this family of boys that came from John Smith and came to America and called Diablo home, where I am, uh, when they passed, they bequeathed their metal collection to the club of their childhood the working class club, club called Carnoustie Golf Club. And those medals were on display proudly at the club, two U.S. Open medals, uh, five Western Open medals, seven Metropolitan Open medals, Canadian Open medal, uh, California Open medals, everything you can imagine. Uh, these were Hall of Fame golfers. Two of the boys were in the Hall of Fame. And their medals all visited Dad here because Dad was so proud of his boys. And in 1931, a brother brought the older brothers' medals to Carnoustie. And in 1950, Sir Henry Cotton brought McDonald Smith's medals back to Carnoustie. Uh, when I saw that, I just knew that I had to be able to tell the story in a way that honored that father, that proud father. So uh, with Carnoustie, we have this society called the Smith Society of Clubs. It includes the clubs where the boys worked. And the boys worked in some of the best clubs in, in America. Uh, and North America, because Mexico City Country Club is one of the grand stories. But um, so I've been to all the clubs. I've been to all the grave sites. I've been to all the basements where they would have had their toil and all their workshops. Um, I've been many, many days to uh, Far Hills in New Jersey. Uh, we, uh, we share joint custody of a U.S. Open trophy to match up with the U.S. Open medals. They're sitting at my Diablo Country Club's trophy case right now. They'll transfer back to Carnoustie for the remainder of the summer once everything uh, unlocks around here. And uh, so we share the archive and the collection between Carnoustie, Diablo, and now other clubs in America that uh, are part of the Smith Society, like Oconomowoc. So, so my, my goal is to have the Smith family uh, uh, understood in golf history as well as they deserve. And, uh, and these boys taught the best, right? They taught, they taught Jerry Travers. They taught uh, Glenna Collette. They taught Marion Hollins. They taught Jack Neville. Uh, their brother-in-law taught Bobby Jones and Alexis Sterling. Uh, so you can't find a better family in terms of the, the pivot point of golf in American golf history. And it just so happens that they call Diablo their adopted home. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a theme of, of connection and 
And uh, those are a lot of names that I think uh, many of our members will recognize from other courses that you just yeah. listed uh, of people that they had influenced. So let's, let's go into uh, the club at Lac LaBelle and Economowoc. You know, give us the, give us the story. Yeah. So um, you have to go back to the Chicago, uh, the great Chicago fire. And, uh, you know, one night the city burned and a lot of the folks that ended up moving to Economowoc lost their businesses, lost their homes in Chicago that, that, that single night. And so um, they wanted to be out of the city in the summertime. And so they decided to go up towards the southern lakes in Wisconsin, Lake Geneva, Lac LaBelle, uh, Lake Oconomowoc, other spots up in the north. Uh, so it happens that Oconomowoc became the center of gravity for some of the captains, the true captains of industry from Chicago, Montgomery Ward, uh, Armour, uh, Pabst, you know, names, household names. Uh, but also other names like John Dupuy, who was the top grain trader in Chicago, uh, and uh, Henry Schufeld who was the top liquor producer in Chicago. So all these guys would bring, go up to Oconomowoc, they would build cottages and they would compete who had the best cottage. So if you built a 30 room cottage, your neighbor's gonna build a 40 room cottage. And then the next one's gonna build a 50 room cottage. And then who had the biggest yacht? And then one of the other members uh, was the president of the Chicago, Milwaukee and St. Paul Railroad. And so he'd built a beautiful train station so that you could arrive in style. So by 1895, you had a group of people that were well-heeled, had plenty of money, had plenty of time. They wanted their children around other folks, uh, uh, their friends, children around them. They built this family community and this family club around these lakes. And so by 1895, they wanted a golf course because that was a new fad and a new style. Uh, Henry Schufeld built a course on his property one summer. And you can imagine kicking it around. Uh, the next year, they bought land. And that's the land that is today, uh, Lac LaBelle. And so in 1896, David Foldis designs a short course. Uh, the next year, William Marshall from St. Andrews, both uh, from St. Andrews, uh, expands it and improves it. 1898, they, they hit the Grand Slam. They hire Alex Smith after Alex had just come back from myopia and had uh, led through 54 holes in the U.S. Open, finishing second. So... His clubmate at Washington Park, Fred Hurd, won. So uh, you can imagine Washington Park holding a U.S. Open trophy in the lobby of their racetrack and the two best golfers in America, but also uh, John Dupuy, who was uh, the founder of Washington Park. Uh, he and his young son, Walter, wanted the best golf they could find up in Wisconsin. So they told Alex when he got back from well, Massachusetts, come on up to Oconomowoc. We, we, we're not going to be here for the summer. So let's go up there and you can be our pro. So Alex came up, uh, improved the course, put in cross bunkers like he always did, uh, played exhibitions. And what they didn't realize is they had just hired the best pro that they could have ever found in America because Alex wasn't just a great golfer. Um, he worked as a foreman for Robert Simpson, which meant he learned a formidable skill. He could deal with folks who uh, were from Back in the day, a whole different class, right? Alex was going to be a, uh, an apprentice blacksmith. Instead, he ended up being a club maker and what, a grand club maker, but also a formidable player. But he also could look you straight in the eye. He could tell you what's right. He could tell you what's wrong. He wouldn't suffer fools. He was basically the Arnold Palmer of his day. And when Arnold Palmer of his day, Alex Smith said, guys, I'd like to have a tournament up here. Everybody showed up. So, but he wouldn't just do it as a tournament, right? Is Alex had the, the issue that you should treat the professionals with professional respect, which means that if you're going to have a tournament, tell them up front how much you're going to have as a purse, tell them how you'll deal with the accommodations, and Alex would protect that. So 1899, he's not going to be the pro there in 1899. He's going to go down, uh, uh, you know, stay in Chicago, work that circuit, but also um, – find someone else to take the spot at Lock LaBelle. So he brought in uh, his club-making uh, employee, Robert S. Simpson, and not the same Simpson family from Carnoustie, a whole different Simpson family in Carnoustie, but happened to work for Robert Simpson, the club-maker. So Robert S. Simpson comes to Oconomowoc, becomes the pro. Now, by the way, in the future, Robert S. Simpson won two Western Opens, so he was no slouch himself, uh, but, but never got better than top 10 in a U.S. Open. So Robert Simpson from Carnoustie becomes the pro of the set in 1899. And they hold the Oconomowoc Open. And they bring in all the players from Chicago, Freddie Hurd, 
James Follis, uh, Alex Smith, his brother Willie, who won the 1899 U.S. Open. Uh, they, they brought in all the, uh, Robert Simpson brought in all the best pros to play the Oconomowoc Open. And uh, it was a rousing success. Uh, even played bagpipes down the center street in a parade because the locals wanted to see the Scots proudly parade down the street to their golf tournament. So you can imagine, they were treated well. They were treated with great respect, and Alex saw to that. The next year, uh, Alex spent the, the winter in California, and Willie Anderson, who had become a dear friend of Alex's, uh, uh, was coming back to Chicago and didn't have a job. And so Alex uh, took him under his wing at Washington Park for a few weeks, and then they negotiated a deal for Willie Anderson to be the professional at Oconomowoc. So now you've gone from Alex Smith to Robert S. Simpson to Willie Anderson. And, of course, Willie Anderson won four U.S. Opens uh, in five years from that point. So you can imagine that Oconomowoc Open in 1900, where you had Willie Anderson. You had Laurie Octoloni this time. You had uh, Alex and Willie Smith. You had Follis. You had Hurd. You had everybody. You had six U.S. Open winners, uh, people who had won 10 of the 15 first U.S. Opens at Oconomowoc, enjoying the golf course you're going to play. And when your uh, members are playing, you're going to go to a hole called the North Pole. And the North Pole is number nine today at Oconomowoc. So you're hitting up to a green. Now, that was the furthest north the course went back in 1900. So when you play the North Pole, you're going to go to the, the furthest area off the lake, but you'll be at the clubhouse because it's now expanded. Uh, you'll be able to look back towards the lake, but you'll be able to stand on the green that those six U.S. Open winners would have been on when they played in the Oconomowoc Open in 1900. Wow. So they, they still do have some of the original land that, that the original course was laid out on. Yeah, there's, there's uh, several spots. Uh, there's a hole that's called uh, Lakeside that is the original number one, and you'll be playing Lakeside. Uh, there's one called Home. Now, it's a different home than existed in the day, but Alex Smith named the holes back in 1898. And uh, when you called a, 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 one of these home, that really meant something, because home meant a lot to these people. You can imagine Alex Smith in 1898 when he's there, because his home meant that his wife and his young daughter were there, and he has a round-trip ticket, and his wife is pregnant. And so he was in America for eight and a half months, and he got back just in time to see his two-year-old. He missed the birth wow. in November. Yeah, but you can imagine home meant a lot to him. So when you play home, I would always urge everyone in the Economic to understand what home really meant 120 years ago to these young men, these 25-year-olds, basically. That's what they were. They were all in their 20s. These young men in their 20s who, who left their homeland, left what they understood, and came to America to deal with captains of industry, right? To deal with real, uh, formidable business people because they weren't going to go in and work in a foundry. They're going out to a country club, and they're, they're dealing with people well-heeled and demanding, uh, but yet they would, put, they would put you with their children because you could teach their children how to golf. They, they had real respect. The Oconomowoc folks had real respect for this, this profession. Yeah, and I, the, um, the list of names, you know, so many U.S. Open winners oh, yeah. that yeah. you've just, just referenced. Um, what type of, of artifacts, I don't know if you can share with us some of the things you've uncovered, you've, you've been in these basements of these clubs that are all connected to the Smith family. Um, I've, I've heard from Tyler and, and Matt up there that there's, there might be, I don't know if it'll be there by the time that we arrive, but there might be some artifacts that, that link um, this history together. Uh, what are some of those that you, you have uncovered that are tied to Economo? Yeah. So um, literally uh, they're installing it as we speak. So they began at 7.30 this morning. It'll be uh, done by 8 o'clock tonight. And um, this, what we have there is an explanation of this kind of uh, platform that created open championships in America, majors. Uh, there were no majors back in that day. There was, you know, open championship in the United States, open championship of Great Britain. So those were the two major championships. Everything else was match play and other kind of play. Um, they developed a purse. They developed a grouping. They brought in the best players. They played against the golf course, not against each other. They played stroke play because Alex Smith would boycott match play because you, you, the only adversary you have is the golf course, not some other player. Beat the golf course the best, you're the champion. That was Alex Smith's life. 
Uh, and, and you'll see that evidenced in the clubhouse because uh, what we have there now uh, is ties to Carnoustie. So part of the Carnoustie collection, part of the, uh, my, my personal collection, part of what we call the Smith Society collection are now loaned to Oconomowoc. They built cases to protect them. Uh, but you're going to find uh, an Alex Smith Memorial Trophy inside. It was uh, uh, started by the PGA of America in 1930 after Alex's death. Uh, as you know, the PGA Championship back in the, those days was match play, which meant that Alex Smith boycotted the PGA Championship, as did all of his brothers. So there's no PGA champion Smith boys out there because they wouldn't play. You know, there's six days of match play. You're a professional. You can get all this done in three days. And the winner is the one who beats the golf course the best. So Alex boycotted. So in 1930, out of love for Alex Smith, when he passes, PGA of America names their medalist qualifier champion, the, the, the medalist. The medalist would earn the Alex Smith Memorial Medal and hold the Alex Smith Memorial Trophy to honor the man who boycotted the PGA Championship. <laughs> That is a great it's story. A great, that is a it's great. a grand story. Yeah, it yeah. really is. So, so that, that trophy is there, along with the 1934 Alex Smith Memorial Medal, won by Bob Crowley. You know, I'm such a fan of match play personally, and I love yeah. the, the competition of it, direct, the direct competition of it. Um, so, right. But I think we might, in honor of Alex Smith, we might have to revert back to some quick <laughs> play when we're playing. <laughs> If you, if you go match play, he's okay with that because he believes it was for amateurs and for okay. exhibitions. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're, he, we're, just, he just yeah, yeah we're he full would play of it. He would, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now he would he would play match play, but he wouldn't do it uh, for an open championship. So did he recruit people um, uh, upon that movement? I mean, the PGA Championship. I don't even know what year it moved to stroke play. Was that part of it? Fifty fifty eight. Uh, in fifty eight, it moved to stroke play more because of television. Uh, match play is great to watch personally, but on TV, it doesn't, doesn't play well. Yeah. So yeah. back in 1958, 59, uh, Arnold Palmer was making golf popular on television and maybe Arnold Palmer's not playing. So then nobody watches. Makes total sense. Yeah. You got to yeah. get the viewers. Exactly. So that's, that's one piece that's there. Another piece that's going to be there for you to see. And we literally just placed it two hours ago is, uh, the Western open championship trophy and three of the championship gold medals. Uh, they, were, they were bequeathed back to Carnoustie, and uh, the three of these are being loved. Now, Carnoustie has 70 bequeathed medals from these two boys and from their other uh, uh, clubmates. Uh, Robert Harris bequeathed his uh, uh, British Amateur Championship medal. Uh, uh, so you know, you've got a number of different uh, George Smiths are there. Uh, we're trying to get some of the Willie Smiths, which were lost in a in the Mexican Revolution. But um, uh, so you're going to have three Western Open medals there, two from Robert S. Simpson and one from Alex Smith when he won the, the Western Open in 1903 uh, at Milwaukee Country Club. Wow. So, so those will be on display, and, um, and that will be in the, in the pub, in the, the rivalry pub. And the rivalry pub, of course, is named for the rivalry of Alex Smith and Willie Anderson. So, uh, so you know, Alex Smith – had gotten second in the U.S. Open three times before he won his first U.S. Open. First time to his clubmate, Fred Hurd. Second time in a playoff with Willie Anderson. Third time, just a straight couple of strokes behind in 1905 to Willie Anderson. So in 1906, Alex Smith finally wins his first U.S. Open. And uh, Willie Anderson was close, but not no cigar. Alex Smith's brother was second, Willie, Willie Smith. And Alex Smith's brother-in-law was third, James Maiden. So 1906 was quite a year for the Smith boys and the, and the family because Alice was married to Jesse Maiden, Jimmy Maiden's sister. I, and I'd have to imagine you've been – how many times have you been uh, back to Scotland and to the Carnoustie? Oh, I go twice a year. Yeah. And, and the captain uh, and uh, now uh, uh, is the chairman. He's the co-chairman with me of the Smith Society, uh, Bill Thompson. So Bill and I, we travel to the States every year. Uh, we would have been uh, – there, it, uh, first week of September with the U.S. Open trophy and medals, uh, we, st we may still, right? we'll see if the, if the world opens up. But, uh, but we travel with the collection annually to the clubs that are part of the society. So I go over there uh, twice a year. He comes here once or twice a year. You know, I, I think there's a uh, – I've, I've 
uh, had the good fortune to be quite a few times. And we actually had a, pl- a, a group trip that was postponed a year with everything that's going on. Uh, but we'll be at Carnoustie next May. And I, I always find that, you know, the connections to our own game, that uh, it's a very different game played on, on Lynx land, of course, versus our parkland courses here. But there are those connections that you start to, to mm-hmm. see. And this is one of the most direct you could have. I mean, they were importing the Smith family to these clubs that we get to play in Wisconsin. I, I just find right. that so uh, powerful. Yeah. 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 And what you'll find is that they, they, they loved America. Uh, they thought it was such a grand place. They never forgot where they came from. These were like ambassadors. They always went back home. And so they, they loved two places in their lives. They didn't leave and, and kind of kick the can. Uh, you know, nowhere is there a club with a collection bequeathed back to the club of their childhood. They're, this is one of the grand top five collections in the world of golf. And it's based out of love of a, of a working class uh, artisan club. Uh, this, the, 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 you can imagine how these boys felt about their club and how they felt about the places that they worked here in America. They loved them both. The, the, um, for someone who wants to dive in more on this topic, what are, what are the resources? What are a good, uh, you wrote a book, I believe on your own club. I'm sure it has a lot of the Smith family. Is there other, uh, What's the name of that one, and what are some other resources that are you recommend? There really isn't much. I, I'm I'm doing it now, right? So you'll I'll be able to tell you soon uh, what it's called. But um, uh, so there isn't. It's really a, a dispersed collection. It's hard to concentrate down to this. Uh, if you go to uh, my club here, or you go to Carnoustie, or now you go to Oconomowoc, you'll see lots of parts of it. There's a couple of golf club displays that you'll see that are going there in there that uh, kind of show the progression of teaching in golf and club making in golf and uh, golf balls. When you see the 1906 golf ball at uh, Oconomowoc, uh, I'll, I'll tell your, your, your uh, members what it is. It's Alex Smith used new technology in 1906 and Willie Anderson was so pissed. It was a silk pneumatic golf ball. So a pneumatic golf ball was pressurized air. Goodyear was making it. So in 1905, Goodyear made a pressurized air golf ball. The problem was it would explode. But when you put the silk around it, it gave it enough strength that it wouldn't explode. And so Alex Smith used a, that, that silk pneumatic golf ball in 1906 to win. Uh, two weeks later, Willie Anderson, out of anger, used the ball in his own course and set the course record. So Willie is kicking himself because so Goodyear hires him too, right, to, to promote the silk pneumatic because now Willie gets it. That's a really good golf ball. Uh, then, of course, the Haskell, the, uh, the rubber core, that changed its design a little bit more and uh, you know, it, it improved beyond self-pneumatic. But in 1906, it was a technological advantage that, that got Alex Smith that title. So those, those things will be there. So where do you find this? I mean, you can find it at the clubs. You can find uh, smatterings of it online and everything else. But most of the stuff isn't written uh, in, a, in, a, in an accurate way because it, it was a hard story to get your arms around. And, uh, you know, this family story is really hard to it, – it's taken me nine years to put it together. It's a hard story to tell. Uh, so it's a hard story to research. But you'll see all of it right there in the Conmore. These, these threads are starting to intertwine for me. I, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and uh, my home course was Portage Country Club. Uh, right, right. So a, lot, a lot of Goodyear executives and, and folks that, that worked uh, at that company. So I, I heard as a caddy about, you know, the, uh, the relationship with the Haskell ball was first played on – on that golf course there, which was on right. a different site, I believe, but it was the yeah. same club. Um, right. And and a lot of people were upset, uh, very upset. Yes. As you were talking about Willie Anderson, it made me think. I, I remember hearing right. that um, a lot of people mm-hmm. refused to play it. It made the game so right. much easier for folks, but they were thinking it right. was going to uh, – there was already concerns about the, the size of courses and the distance. Right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, everything changed in 1901. Right, uh, it, it became popular. 1902, Laurie Octoloni used that ball, and uh, you know the pros were trying to make it pure. Let's all play. You know, we're all doing gutty balls. We're all and the amateur that that year was was a turning point. And so Octoloni and a couple other guys used that, and Octoloni won the U.S. Open. The next year, everybody used the Haskell. As yeah. as 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 uh, the golfer typically begrudgingly yeah. goes the direction of advancement. And then all the equipment changes, right? Because now, now it's a different kind of outer covering. It, it, can, it can handle steel against it differently. It can handle wood against it differently. It putts differently. So literally, now all the clubs have to change. 
So it was a, a great thing for manufacturers. Yeah. But um, 1906, Alex Smith, with that golf ball, played a tournament in D.C., played on Portage, then won the Western, then won the U.S. Open. So that was his, his train route as he went to Chicago to, to play. Wow. Uh, I'm going to follow up on more of that. That's going to be my next research yeah, project. I like I'd, like, I'd like to I hear more it. about that. Uh, so back to Locke LaBelle. And so Craig Haltom has become a friend of the Golf Society. He's a member of ours. And um, we just, you know, we're huge fans of Sand Valley and the work that he did there. He's got a porch named after him. And when we heard, he had, when we heard we had a, he had a solo project, we were just so excited. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and a few of us played the nine hole preview. Uh, obviously the rest of us are going to go back and see, um, the other, the other nine holes. But I, I was curious if with this history, you know, had, did you have much interaction with Craig as a golf course designer to help him understand the original plans for the golf course? Yeah. Um, most of that work was already done. It was laid out. It was ready to go. Uh, and it's world-class. Uh, so, uh, you know, the hard part about history is that if you do try to hold those things into a design today, we just redid our course here at Diablo and $12 million. I mean, everything, uh, it's a brand new golf course, but it's the same routing. We kept the routing because uh, Watson and Neville had done that in 1914. 1896 routings, uh, just simply don't have the same uh, uh, the pleasure to play. So uh, there are elements of it and there's routing to it and, and you'll be able to see it, feel it and understand it. But, uh, but now the Morse family along with uh, Craig found a way to create a world-class golf experience that has elements of history that you'll feel when you're playing. Uh, and then you'll understand when you're inside the building. You know, do you think the current, uh, our generation seems to be, our generation of golfers seems to be, uh, really gravitating to course architecture and wanting mm -hmm. to know who the original uh, architect was, what was the intent of this whole. Do you think a lot of that is making us uh, amateur historians as well? I mean, is that part of this, the attraction to history? I, I think so. Um, you know, I, my, my career was in the wine business. And I make the argument that it's really difficult to differentiate to the consumer in the wine business. Uh, you know, government says everything is in this size. Government says you say this on the label. Uh, government says you can have this much of a percentage of grapes if you call it this and this much of a percentage if you call it that. Um, so how do you differentiate? Uh, you know, you do it through some winemaking techniques maybe and certainly through how you deal with your consumer and uh, different things. But it's really hard to differentiate. Okay, you know, so There's basically seven grape varieties. Um, golf is so much the same way. You know, every golf course is 18 holes. There are things called threes, fours, and fives. There aren't twos, there aren't sixes. Uh, the cup size is standard, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you differentiate? You know, you differentiate through experience. Uh, you differentiate through, you can make, you can make like a wine, you can make the product better. Um, but in terms of differentiation, where do you find that? And, uh, the, the, the land, uh, those who affected the land, that's what I always find. It's, it's a two-step process. If you have really great land, you're going to attract really great members, architects, professionals, and golfers. And so, so the land, kind of like wine, uh, is the baseline. And then after that, you can add all the other things that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, perceived value. And you've got all the demonstrable value there, all the land. But the perceived value, is this hallowed ground you're stepping onto? You, I know you've been to Scotland. You feel it. When you walk here to this building, our, our clubhouse is uh, an original 1881 clubhouse built by railroad executives. And it wasn't for golf. It was for people that wanted to stay at. This was a long ways out of San Francisco in the day. It was a full day trip. So uh, when you walk in up to our club and you walk in, you feel like there's an 1881 hanging around. Uh, and same thing with golf courses. Architects can do that. Uh, professionals can do that. Events that were held there can do that because the land was so extraordinary. It, and it survived. And that's the thing about courses like Diablo versus Centennial courses today. Centennial courses today, 1920s kind of courses, survived too things a, a depression and a world war pre-world war one you had to survive three so so we know if you can survive those three tests uh you that is quite a pedigree surviving two of those tests is also very impressive because a lot of courses didn't survive but um when you, when you can survive you're, you're built you're built to last and then of course that that story like you say the architect and how they did it and what they thought it just matters you know what the winemaker does what the architect does they're very similar. 
what's your I love the comparison to wine. I, I've never thought of it that way, but I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying there. What uh, what's your favorite vintage of golf course? What do you like to to play, and, and what, what do you find is the most enjoyable? Yeah, I I didn't in nineteen oh, nineteen two thousand six. I was at Carnoustie. I did that one of those eight day twelve round marathons in a death march at the end. Right, um, Carnoustie was my favorite course. I don't know why. I played the best there. I enjoyed the experience the most. I still have the glove. Now, I, in 2006, I gave about two hoots when it came to golf history. Right? I, was, I was still involved in other things. Um, then it turns out that when I go back, uh, it's still my favorite course. I just love playing that. I love St. Andrews. I love all you know, Aberdeen, uh, uh, Edsel, where John Smith was, uh, Panmure, uh, King's Barn. Right? I, I love all those. Here in the States, uh, you know, if, if you've not been to uh, NASA on Long Island or, or Wycheckel, uh in Westchester, they're, they're great experiences. They're still basically what they were. And you can feel it. You can feel the history. That's, yeah. The, the, I, you know, I'm now hearing this comparison to, um, we have a, a member of ours who's been over to Scotland many, many times. And he is, is known for finding off the beaten path courses that you're not gonna see on on the main itineraries of those you know 12 day yeah. the, the bucket listers the open venues and right. um i think we're starting to see that more here too and mm-hmm. i i would venture that most of our members the courses that we're talking about today you know they, they didn't they weren't on the radar um mm-hmm. and and they didn't know that there was history there and i think what's really fun about that experience of playing places like that is you find out that history and you feel another layer of connection beyond yes. just your enjoyment. Right. Yeah. And for me, it's that way. Yeah. I, and uh, uh, I, I want to know when I go to a club and I, I play it for the first time, I want to know a little bit about it. And, and um, you know, most people stroll through a, a country club, a golf course that they, they stroll through and they enjoy it and they like it. And they like if there's something with history there that makes them feel good. Then there's this group, a smaller group, and they, they study it. And they can't, they, they, they can't get enough. They'll spend 10, 15 minutes, they'll ask a few questions. And then you have what they call those scholars, the ones that want to know exactly why this is here is, is, and what's the intent. And, um, and it's funny. It's kind of like fine wine. You go from liking a color to liking a type to liking a vintage to liking a winemaker style. And, and so there's a progression, and you never go back. Yeah, so that's like fine art. Once you've developed an appreciation for it, you don't go back there. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> I I can definitely relate to that because it you, yeah. you you start going down that path. I think it's a one way road. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah. You know some of the holes too that I have not yet yet played um, in Economa Walk. The the fifth is a road hole. It sounds mm-hmm. like Craig took some inspiration from seventeen at St Andrews. Um, you know, there's a punch bowl or portion of a punch bowl green on, on number four, the par three. Right. I do remember right. that one. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the features that I think you would appreciate is, uh, the, the burn. Mm-hmm. I don't know what whole number that's going to be, but it's, it's as, probably as close as the golf course gets to the actual lake. Uh, yes. it, it, tell us, I, I know Craig was on our podcast and actually told us about why, why it's there. I thought it was t- a totally, a you know, to your point on asking the question why, I thought it was a, a feature that was just bold and, you know, you don't right. see that anywhere. You don't see that mm-hmm. in, in uh, the Midwest. Right. right. It says it's drainage. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, it always is. It always is. <laughs> yeah, we have grassy hollows here. And grassy hollows were a feature in the day because, you know, off this mountain comes water and has to go somewhere. And so these grassy hollows are like a quarter stroke penalty if you're in them. They're not quite uh, mowed the same way. Well, they're... Uh, you know, it's not a burn because a burn has a different meaning in Scotland than it does here. So uh, Alex gave it a different name. He gave it the name Babel, Babel which, was, which was a different kind of a watery stream. And so, um, yeah, that's what it's called. And, and it, it's a grand feature, but it literally is. A golf has always functioned, right? I mean, the, you, know, you know the story, right? You go back in the day, the reason the greens were greens is because those were lower and they were out of the wind. And that's where the sheep would eat the grass longer because it was out of the wind. That became the area where you put a hole. So there's always function in golf. Everything has a function purpose. What are some of your other, uh, any other 
the items in the game of golf that we now might take for granted that came from a came from an interesting place. You know, um, the we're going to tell the story at Lock Lavelle, uh, but uh, the first designer, David Foles, also uh, developed the the cup and flag. So uh, we're going to have a little memorial to him at some point uh, at the club. But that wasn't an invention in 1895. You know, you you had to you know kind of do makeshift things. You know, so a cup and a flag were were that was real technology. Something that would be inside that wouldn't affect play and would hold something so you could see where you're hitting to from a long ways away. That that didn't exist in the same way it does now. Wait, so so in in Scotland at that time, 1895, they they didn't have uh, pins. They'd have markers and they'd have different kinds of things. But you know, do you think about the metal that would hold a flag in a way that would be you know uh, consistent and and it, no, those things didn't exist. That was invented by David Foldis. Invented. Patented. Patent. Wow. Did he, yeah. did, he, did he profit off of that, that patent? No, I think it was kind of like the Frisbee, right? He invented it, but somebody else made the money. Right? The best distributors make the money. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. oh, this is, David, this is fascinating stuff. Um, you know, I, I feel some, some parallels. It was funny you were talking about the Chicago Fire and everybody, you know, getting out of here and going, escaping right. to their lake cottages and, and homes. Yeah. Um, building bigger and better. I mean, it actually sounds a lot like Chicagoans that I know today where you know, we, we're going through a pandemic and really the town has felt uh, desolate at times because everybody has gone to their, you know, lake houses in Michigan or, or Wisconsin. And um, right. there's so many parallels that I, I'm just kind of seeing with all this. Yeah. And I guess yeah, everything. Yeah. My, my, my question related to that is just what have you learned about uh, society more broadly that, uh, from diving into this golf history? Um, that this too shall pass. You know, my, my, my history endeavors uh, are about uh, 40% golf. Uh, 60% is other things, presidential history, uh, uh, rail and railroad history. And right across the street from me is a home that was built in 1876, still stands. And uh, it was owned, it was built by the associates, right? Hopkins, Crocker, Stanford. Uh, uh, Huntington, so these and David Colton, their partner, and um, but all this stuff cycles. Remember, 1876, we didn't have an election, we didn't have a president. It, it, there wasn't there, there were states that couldn't certify their elections. We had to have a, a constitutional uh convention to figure that out. And the electoral college made a compromise. Uh, it was a miserable time because it was a weak president, etc. Um, Supreme Court decisions in the 1850s, um, uh, uh suppression decisions in 1917 we've been through far deeper dark times um you know in 1918 we all wore masks uh in 19 late 1918 uh the other side politically argued that the masks aren't going to be done for the second wave uh everything we've been through all this stuff many times the difference now is that we have instant information. We can choose our source. So we end up getting concentrated in one side. But also, um, they would have uh, given anything to live in this time with penicillin, with transportation, uh, with availability of, of health care. Uh, they didn't have those things. Uh, you know, the Smith family had 10 children. Five died in, 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 uh, in infancy. Um, mom buried nine of her 10 kids. I mean, these people live pretty, pretty desperate, difficult lives. Um, yeah, we're going through a lot of stuff, but a lot of champagne problems too. Wow. That's, uh, that, that's a really good message. And on top of that, you know, I'm, I'm curious uh, that other 60% or all of it, have you, have you had much, you know, there's a lot of, uh, racial injustice, obviously, and our protests are going on here and as well as your, your neck of the woods, I know, um, have you ever researched much of that side of the game of golf in particular? Um, just kind of races uh, play in, in that world? Um, you know, I, I haven't focused on that as an angle for my stories. Um, but if you look at the caddies, uh, Shinnecock, they were all Native American caddies. If you look at the caddies uh, uh, at Augusta when it opened, uh, mostly African-American uh, caddies. Um, these, these pros loved the caddies because uh, what they saw was themselves because these kids all walked out there and tried to get a, a, a couple of pennies or maybe a shilling for trying hard to carry so much golf clubs when they were nine years old 
You see someone like that, you work hard. Uh, the magic of the uh, Economox story is that you're going to see that four of the key boys that worked as caddies for Alex Smith that, that grew up in a, you know, dad had passed and mom had all these kids. They would take the boat for free across to, to get to the golf course. And uh, they would then carry golf clubs for Alex Smith and Willie Anderson and Robert S. Simpson and Willie Orr. Um, these boys all became pros, playing pros. They all played in U.S. Opens. Two are in state Hall of Fames. And they learned their, their trade from a couple of these tough Scottish kids. So, so you would find that it was a very, you know, people who wanted to work found their work, uh, especially as caddies, because that was usually the most industrious kids. Yeah. Yeah, the, the yeah, work ethic of a caddy. You can't, you don't last very long if you can't put in the effort. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, that's 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 really interesting. You know, I've always um, had a lot of admiration for uh, PGA pros that have been a part of my life and taught me the game. And mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it it's probably it's I think it's great, David, that someone like yourself is, is diving into you know the one of the great professional families of the game of golf in the Smiths, because I think, um, I think PGA pros to a degree sometimes are, are quite underappreciated even today, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, I, I hope that changes. I really do because I think these are the people that love the game of golf the most and they, right. they really make it possible for the rest of us. So I, I, th- I just think sharing these stories is good, good all around, you know, things have obviously changed, but Maybe not that much. Maybe, maybe there still is a lot of Alex Smiths, you know, that aren't winning U.S. Opens, but are mm-hmm. running their yeah. clubs and trying to to make it the best best place possible. Yeah, I mean uh, Justin Thomas, right? I mean he 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 grew up on a golf course trying to play. Uh, that's most of these kids did that, right? They 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 began very young. They didn't have personal trainers, and I mean they just literally they were kids, right? And and you know the the cream rose to the top, and I think that happens every day. In everything, I I, uh, I I was around some pretty extraordinary athletes at Wisconsin. I, I ran uh, cross country at Wisconsin, and um, there were some unbelievable talented, unbelievably talented people that uh, uh, found their way from circumstances that weren't blessed. And uh, and I think that to this day, I see it all around. Yeah. Well, that's that's great, David. I, I want to thank you again for joining us. Is Real there pleasure, Matt? Is there any other uh, tips, recommendations before we get to the club at Lac LaBelle? Uh, just prepare yourself to uh, 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 be willing to learn what you don't know. Don't let what you know get in the way of what you don't know. Don't let what you know get in the way of what you don't know. That is perfect. David, thank you very much for joining us. All right, great stuff. Thanks, Matt. Take care.